Welcome to the Learner Centered Spaces podcast, where we empower and inspire ownership of learning. Sponsored by Mastery Portfolio, hosted by Star Saxstein, Emma Chapetta, and Crystal Frommert. In each episode, we will bring you engaging conversations with a wide variety of educators, both in and out of the classroom. This podcast is created for educators who want to learn more about how to make the shift toward learner-centered spaces for their students, schools and districts, or education at large. The Learner-Centered Spaces podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Get ready to be inspired as we dive right into the conversation with today's guest. Tyler Rablin is a high school language arts teacher and instructional coach for Sunnyside School District in Sunnyside, Washington. On the side, he is the owner of Tyler Rablin Consulting Partners with the consulting group Shifting Schools. It's a contributing writer for Edutopia and has been a featured speaker at conferences around the Pacific Northwest for his work with assessment and instructional technology. He is a signed author with Times 10 Publishing and has a forthcoming book on the link between motivation and assessment. His educational passion is focused on the ways that intentional technology integration, modernized assessment strategies, and strong cultures of learning can allow us to provide meaningful, powerful, and personal learning experiences for each of our students. In his personal life, he enjoys reading, running, and spending time hiking and camping with his wife and two dogs. Hey, Tyler. It is so great to have you on our podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, the role that you're in currently, your location, some of your journey, and maybe an interesting fact? Yeah. uh, So I am Tyler Ablin. I am currently, I'm switching into an instructional technology coach role, but for most of my career, I've been a high school English language arts teacher. I am in Sunnyside, Washington. So that's central Washington state. We're on the dry side of the mountains, not the rainy side. My journey, so um, growing up, school generally worked pretty well for me, um, and so I thought I had a good understanding of it, and then decided I wanted to become a teacher, got my undergrad, got my master's down in Portland, um, and then at the time, there were no jobs for teachers, and so I took a job out uh, in Milton Freewater. It's like pretty rural eastern Oregon. Um, taught there for a while and then moved up to Sunnyside, Washington, where I've been the last, uh, the last, let's see, seven years now, I think. Um, oh, and an interesting fact about me, I only say this because it has been like a hot debate between, uh, friends and people I interact with on Twitter. Apparently an interesting fact is that I unpack my suitcase into the drawers at hotels, which I thought everyone did that. And then I've learned I'm actually the weirdo. So that's the interesting fact. (laughs) I saw on Twitter when you put that poll out and I like started typing out all this stuff. Um, I wanted you to feel heard and seen. And I was like, my husband likes to unpack and I know Connie likes to unpack. (laughs) I am definitely a suitcase person myself. Um, Uh But I, that is a very interesting fact. I think it says something about us psychologically. <laughs> I'm sure it does. <laughs> Tyler, I'm actually with you because I pack really lightly. And so I usually just have one backpack and then I usually need that backpack to go to conferences and stuff. So I have to unpack <laughs> my clothes from it. So I am on team unpack. Yes. Um, All right. More of us. Yeah. 
thanks for sharing so much about yourself. And now we can get into talking about the classroom. So could you tell us a little bit about what a learner-centered space looks like, feels like, sounds like to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to start with a little bit of the opposite. So I, early on in my career, I, I knew that I wanted kids to have more involvement in the learning process, and I wanted to, them to have more choice, more say. Um, and the first few times that I tried it, and even still when I try it, um, it feels a little bit uh, unintentional or chaotic or unstructured. And so it's it sounds weird, but for me, something about a learner-centered space is that there has to be a, a foundational structure behind it so that things are intentional. Um, you know, there are times where kids should be able to just pursue really cool things that maybe aren't closely connected to the curriculum. But if we're focused on helping students grow and learn in our content areas or just academically in general, I've really learned that there has to be, it's this fine line of a balance of a, a background structure or, you know, for me, a lot of it goes back to it, are, are is the learning that we're intending to do, is that really clear? And is there, not just is it clear where we're supposed to get to, but are there supports that kids can use along the way? I mean, I've really found that clarity, if we want students to have like that learner-centered space, clarity is a huge piece of it because, you know, for better or worse, kids approach school as trying to figure out how to play the game. And as much as I want to just say like, hey, go do anything, have autonomy. Like there's still that level of fear that I think sometimes we overlook when it comes to learned centered spaces. Um, and in the, one of the big things for me that I found in battling that fear in a learned centered space is really focusing on um, that. The, I used to say confidence to help students feel confident, but I've learned to use the term self-efficacy instead. Um, confidence can be sort of a false confidence. It can be founded on nothing substantial, but self-efficacy is all about providing kids with evidence that they can be successful. Um, and so for me, that's, I used to really just focus on, do kids know where we're going? And I've really had to shift that and focus on like, do kids know where they've been in a way that helps them see they can be successful? Like if I'm going to embark on a new journey, I'm going to be terrified unless I have a few steps I've taken along the way to say, I can do this. I've got this. Um, and so for me, like that self-efficacy, which sort of manifests as confidence or motivation in the classroom, you can almost, when you, you know, when you asked, what does a learner centered space look like and feel like you can feel that level of confidence and motivation, or on the opposite hand, you can feel the lack of it. Um, and I know that sounds really like wishy-washy and hard to pin down, but for me, that's the biggest thing is, am I providing a structure and to help students know where we're going, but also am I thinking backwards and saying, do they know where they've been and am I showing them places they've been successful so that they feel that that self-efficacy, that that confidence to take autonomy and run with it? Because risk-taking is scary if we don't think it's going to work out for us. So we've got to have something to convince us that, okay, I, I've even if it's just a teeny tiny step at the beginning, I was successful there. So I can be successful if I take a little bit of a risk next time. So if a student is like you notice that they are not having, they don't feel that self-efficacy, they're not noticing their previous successes, what are some of the strategies that you use to help them see that? There's a couple different ways that I do it. One is 
being really intentional about how I build or I guess how I, I sequence uh, my approach to assessment. So e even if it's something really, really small, being intentional about having a, a check-in point at the beginning where, you know, maybe there's three new concepts we're going to be talking about. Having something where a student can demonstrate that even they know the definition of these concepts, maybe it's a, a bigger skill and they're not comfortable really engaging in the skill. But, you know, if I'm working on character development, like let's say that's something we're working on in our classroom, even just something along the lines of like, can they identify five methods of characterization an author might use? Like it's not the deepest skill we're going to do, but it's a foundational concept that is sort of a, that. Uh, I, I like the term like a low bar, high ceiling where they have to have that vocabulary to engage in the conversation. And so often we just like, maybe we just rush past it to get to what we consider the meat of the learning. But for a lot of students who don't feel confident, they need that little check early on to say, okay, I at least know the definitions, right? Like I've got the foundation that I need. And so for me, it's, that's one of the pieces is did I build, I call them checkpoints, but did I build a checkpoint early on so that a student can really see that they are learning? Even if it's something small, like so often we overlook those small things and think the only thing that matters is the goal, but those little things along the way are what really help build that self-efficacy for students. And so the intentionality there, but also, I mean, I have found throughout my whole assessment approach, one of the most important things that I can do with a student is sit down with them and talk about their learning. Um, I use the analogy that the assessments for me are like the bricks that I'm using to build an understanding, but those conversations are, are the mortar that holds it all together. Um, and, you know, there are times where you have a student who is not feeling confident or they're not seeing where they've been successful. And sometimes in those, those learning conferences with students, my goal is just to sit down and point out to them like, hey, look, you did this or, you know, you you yes, you're maybe struggling right now. But remember last time you struggled and you got through it. And this is the example of that. Um, so it's you know, I find the way to help students who are struggling without self-efficacy if it comes on both ends, something at the beginning that we've intentionally designed to to help students sort of cross that first little threshold and feel successful, but then also recognizing that all along the way, everybody gets stuck when they're trying to learn something new and just being intentional about building time to talk to students. Um, you know, if as much as we can founding that on evidence we're collecting from them so that we don't just say you're doing great, which feels like sort of an empty phrase, but instead of, instead, if we can say, Hey, you're doing really well, but I, I want to show you specifically how that's where we really see students start building that self-efficacy because it's, it's not just, me telling them this is what I think, but it's me pointing at this is what you've done. And that's where we really see students building that that confidence that they need to to take risks and pursue autonomy in the classroom. Hi, this is Crystal here. And I, I love what you're saying about the checkpoints and helping students to kind of take the temperature of where they are with their own learning. Um, and it sounds a lot like a form like formative assessment, which a lot of us do. So I will ask a little bit about the summative assessment piece, because I know many of our listeners are teachers and they are you know, required by their school systems to somehow submit um, evidence of learning in, in a, a summative assessment type form. And I'm curious how that would fit into your vision of learner-centered spaces. Yeah, I, so that formative assessment, 
one of the things, you know, building up, there are so many kids that when they get to a summative assessment, it's, it's a, they approach it with a level of fear, right? We have students in our classrooms who they've been successful in classes before. They feel like they can approach it with confidence, but for a lot of students, that summative assessment is, you know, it's terrifying. Um, and so those formative assessments help build their confidence. And one of the things that I really push on when we talk about this concept of summative, um, and it, you know, this is going to depend on what your district allows you to do, what the requirements are, but I really like, I used to focus on that summative assessment and I really like now using the term summative evaluation, um, because a summative assessment oftentimes feels like it needs to be this big test, this isolated event that, you know, the term summative, we usually, that's the end, right? When you think about summative, um, and so often a summative assessment just means summative in terms of the end of time, not necessarily the end of where we should be in our learning or getting to the end of learning. And so instead of summative assessment, I've started using the term summative evaluation because for me, that evaluation, um, when you think about what evaluate means is I'm looking at all the available data that we have over from those formative assessments that we've been building and, and we're evaluating, where are we at now? Um, and so, this is why for me, I mean, I still like my, I work in a district that's, uh, our high school is pretty big. I work on a pretty big team. Like we still have common uh, assessments. We have common formatives and common summatives that we use. And I used to feel sort of hamstrung by that to, that was the only way that I could assess students. And by, by making that distinction for me, just mentally, I have this summative assessment, but this isn't my summative evaluation and really making that distinction for kids has shifted a lot how we approach that sort of that that final reflection of learning is we take the summative assessment that's sort of our big thing that we do towards the end but then we're going to sit down and say hey maybe you struggled on that summative assessment but that's not the only piece of data we have to determine how you're doing um, so often we see kids that build confidence build confidence build confidence struggle on that final assessment and then are left with this feeling of i didn't do it um, and then, you know, from there we go on to learn something new. And one of the last places you want a student to start learning something new is this feeling of, I didn't do it. I can't do it. I'm struggling. And so I really like that follow-up piece. If it's the end of a unit, um, really being able to sit down and say, okay, we just did our summative assessment, but that's, we need to talk about this more. That's not a, you know, no single assessment is going to capture the whole of student learning. Learning's too complex and too messy. It's an approximation at best. And so I like being able to sit down with students and really have that conversation where I can say, hey, you missed these three questions. It makes you think you uh, maybe you're not understanding this. Can you talk to me about that? And a lot of times you can uncover stuff that we think sometimes that summative assessment is truth. And that's not often the case at all. And so that assessment might have covered up some of the truth. And so my goal in those follow-up conversations is to try to uncover what's really going on there. What are we missing in this approximation we just did in the assessment? Tyler, there's so much that you just said that I would love to unpack. First of all, I love the distinction between a summative evaluation and a summative assessment. And I so appreciate that you talk to kids as much as you do. You know, in the conversations we've had, that that is something I believe um, very, very, very 
it's very important. I mean, kids aren't only one thing. There are so many factors that go into any one performance that we need multiple data points all the time. And so often the assessments we create, although well-intentioned, are often not as clear, as you mentioned clarity earlier, not as aligned and not as effective as they need to be. And I know a lot of teachers struggle with that because creating a really well-balanced assessment that's going to provide multiple opportunities for students to show the depth of their understanding, you know, it, it makes it makes me personally rethink summative, summative evaluation or assessment completely and the necessity of it um, when really we want kids to be lifelong learners and have that iterative growth mindset kind of idea. So if, if we all buy into that, I don't understand why the necessity of a summative at the end is, you know, what schools cling to in terms of data so much. So to that end, as we kind of transition away from talking about assessment specific, you've described some wonderful things that are happening in your class. What advice or tips would you give to someone who wants to create a more learner-centered space like the one you've described? I think one of the first things that's really helpful to do is, um, and I mentioned it earlier, a lot of times we focus on the end goal of the learning, and that's what we set in front of students. But And, and typically, we do that with like a standard. Um, sometimes we break it into a learning outcome, but usually it's a standard. And, and those are, they're big and meaty and complex. And I think I forget sometimes as an expert in my subject who knows it really well, I look at that and it makes sense to me, but then I have to put myself in the mind of like one of my freshmen who maybe didn't do so well eighth grade in English and they're, they're struggling and they don't even like, I've oftentimes used the character analysis example. If you break down that standard, there's like six, seven, eight things in there that a student needs to know. And those can become roadblocks for students if they're trying to become more of an independent learner. And so one of the things that I found is most helpful for me, and, and this is not something that I learned this through trial and error, through many messy, messy attempts, is learning how to take that standard and sort of map it backwards. Um, I call them learning progressions. There's a bunch of different ways that people have referenced that. But you know, if I want students to be able to analyze how a character's development impacts the theme of a text, I need to go all the way back to the point of asking my, you know, helping a student see, hey, do you even, the, a, a protagonist and antagonist, complex versus like flat, or round versus flat characters, like being able to go all the way back there helps make sure that when we do give students more of that autonomy, when they get stuck, they have a reference point to say, okay, this is what's tripping me up. I can take that next step. Um, it's not necessarily to say you have to go step by step through this progression. Um, that's how I started using them. And I, I learned that, you know, no, no one can say exactly how anyone's brain is going to learn anything. There are general guidelines and rules, and, and I almost said rules, they're not rules, but there's general guidelines about how our brains take new information and make it more complex. Um, but it's more about helping students building a path so that when a student gets stuck, they don't have to sit there and feel disappointed or discouraged, but they have something 
tangible and concrete to say, this is my next step. This is where I can go next. Or if, or I'm stuck on this concept, I've got to go look this up and learn about it. Um, so that's the first one is just really spend time unpacking whatever you're asking students to learn how to do and, and build a progression that makes sense to, and I mean, I think about it in the, makes sense to the student who's going to struggle most. Um, I use the term access points a lot when I talk about the learning. If, if we have one access point to the learning and that's competency in the standard we're asking students to do, we're leaving out a lot of our learners um, versus if we can unpack that and look at all the different access points kids need, right? If we've got a student who English isn't their first language and the vocabulary is new, is there a point for them to access that learning just through the language that they need to use to engage in the conversation with the rest of us? Um, so I would say like, that's the, the, the foundational piece that sort of is, is more on the teacher. I've done, I've done some unpacking with students and there is some value in that, but uh, I like to use like an 80, 20 approach with that. So I do 80% of the unpacking and then I'll talk to students for the other 20. Um, but that gets me to kind of my second point in terms of what to do or what first step. And, and for me, that's ask kids for feedback like constantly ask kids for feedback um, because I, I can I could tell story after story after story of times that I tried to give students more autonomy, create a more learner-centered space, and it didn't go very well. And then I tried to figure it out. Um, and usually the solutions that I came up with needed more solutions later because they weren't working. And I've just found that as you try something new, as I tried something new, being able to get that feedback from students of what went well, what didn't go well. I mean, I teach, I taught freshman English. They are very good at giving you their opinion when you ask for it. And I got a lot of my valuable solutions. You know, if we're doing a station rotation and it feels unproductive, being able to like talk with the class and say, hey, this is what I saw. What did you see? They'll tell me what they see. And then really saying, how do we do better next time? Um, and again, it's that idea of, letting them know that they aren't, they don't have to be perfect at this right off the bat. This is, you know, a lot of students, a lot of classrooms, I'm happy to say more and more classrooms are changing, but a lot of classrooms, the way you're successful is you show up and you follow along. And it's weird for students to come to an environment where they don't just get to follow along. It's scary for some of them. It's intimidating, it's confusing. And so being able to recognize that this is going to be a process um, we are going to learn this process of a classroom as much as we're going to learn the content and asking students for that feedback. That's, that's been one of the biggest things for me as I've kind of been on this journey. That is all such great advice, Tyler. So thank you so much. If our listeners want to learn more, do you have anybody else that you'd like to shout out that they can continue to learn from? Yeah, I mean, I would say... Like I, Twitter is where I get a lot of my inspiration, my connection with other like-minded teachers. Um, there's a teacher I connected with, her name's Vanessa Ellis. She actually has um, a piece in an upcoming book that I'm working on um, where she talks about how she does it. Um, so she's great. Natalie Vardavaso is awesome out of Canada. I, Canada, like, I don't know what they're doing, but so many of the cool ideas I hear from educators about assessment and learner-centered classrooms are coming from Canada. So I don't know. They got something good going on up there. Um, other, I mean, Nicholas Emanuel's great. If you want to learn more about like student conferencing, um, human restoration project, 
Marcus Luther has been a, a favorite of mine on Twitter recently. He's another English teacher that shares a lot about how he's trying to involve students more in the process of their own learning and their own assessment. Um, so, I mean, I'm sure I could go on and on, but those are the ones that I think of when, it, when the, I was asked the question. Thank you for that. I have to agree with you. I follow a lot of Canadian educators and I just went to a conference uh, for Building Thinking Classrooms, which comes out of British Columbia. And it's it's amazing um, how much we can learn from our, our neighbors to the north, if you're listening to this from the States, that is. So, <laughs> maybe you're Canadian listening to this saying, yay, Canadians. So thank you, Tyler. This has been fantastic. We really appreciate your time. And I know our listeners are really going to gain a lot of information about how to shift towards learner-centered spaces. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. I, it was great getting to talk to all of you. Thank you for learning with us today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. If you'd like any additional information from the show, check out the show notes. Learn more about Mastery Portfolio and how we support schools at masteryportfolio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mastery for All and on LinkedIn on our Mastery Portfolio page. We'd love for you to engage with us. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or know someone who would be an inspiring guest, please fill out the survey found in the show notes. And we'd love your feedback. Please write a review on your favorite podcasting app.